Welcome to Because the Beatles, a podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, please feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us anytime at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Hey, Erica, what's up? Hey, not so much. How are you? Good, good. Just, you know... Lots to talk about, lots of stuff coming up. It's pretty busy in the Beatle world at the moment. Yeah, let's start with something from the past. Let's start with something you recently did. (laughs) You went to the fest and had some adventures there, so do tell. I did. Well, it was kind of a last-minute decision. I, I brought the Woodstock Babies that I talked about last episode to the fest as a vendor, which I'd never been a vendor there before. Mm. So it was like, you know, I sort of popped in incognito. A lot of people didn't realize I was going to be there. But surprise, I was. And yeah, it was great. I had a table all weekend, and I got to meet. I met one of our listeners, Nicole. Hi, Nicole. So nice to meet you. Hi, Nicole. Um, I awesome. saw. It was really cool. I saw... Um, One of our buttons in the wild, which I can only assume that person picked it up last year and still had it. So good on them (laughs) because I've already lost like so many of our buttons. Yeah. And of course, one of the best things about this past fest was that the God himself, Mr. Mark Lewison was there. Oh my God. So you guys get to hang. Yes, we did. And number one, I will have y'all know that Mark listens to our podcast. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark. Hi. Hi, Mark. And uh, how I found this out was quite interesting. We were sitting in the bar having a bite on Friday night, and uh, he turns to me and he says, you know, I listened to your podcast. And of course, I was like, what? (laughs) I wanted to be like, I'm so sorry, but also I'm not sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. What are you uh, talking about? He's listening to us. (laughs) I know. I know. But, you know, well, you know, I'm sorry, not sorry. So anyway, he goes, yeah, you know, I heard you, your, your episode about the White Album Symposium in November, which you guys can listen to. It's our Women, Women of the White Album episode. And we talk about that event. And in that podcast, Mark was like, I heard you talking about how I told dick jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to refresh our listeners' memories, if you don't remember that far back, during that episode, we also talked about our experience at the White Album Symposium and how one of the fun things that we did was we hung out with Mark for a while one night, late at night, and there were a lot of jokes around. Some of them were dick jokes, uh, world-renowned Beatles scholars. They're just like us. And we had an amazing time and we mentioned it on the podcast. So, yeah. But I think, honestly, the dick jokes were from his presentation about the White Album because there were very many dick jokes, if I remember correctly. And um, he included many, many dick jokes in his presentation uh, throughout the weekend. So, these are public dick jokes. They're not private dick jokes. Anybody can enjoy these dick jokes. And I'm not going to say dick jokes anymore. And I sort of couldn't remember. So I said, you know, did we did we talk about them admiringly? And he <laughs> said, yes. And so I was like, okay, yep, that sounds like us. Yep. So I buy. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that was good. Um, and then I told him about our Lewis and is God hashtag. And he was like, just stop. <laughs> but still not stop, Mark. Nope, can't stop, won't stop. But uh, thanks, Mark, for being effing awesome. You're the best. We love you. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. But yeah, Fest was all right. Fest was good. It was low key. It was great. 
Fun. Good times. If you missed Fest, like I did, which was sad, I was very sad. There is something else to look forward to coming up in just a few weeks. Oh my gosh. I know. This is a reminder that BC the Beatles will be at Beatles at the Ridge, which is in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, the weekend of September 20th. We'll be doing a live podcast from there. We'll have merch for the first time, which we're so excited about. Mm, It's going to be great. The theme of the festival is actually Beatles merch. So a lot of people are going to be bringing their Beatles merch there. And our live episode is going to be about, of course, what else? Next-gen Beatles merch and the Beatles merch that people who were next-gen fans were into and like to collect. And maybe we'll be bringing a few things of our own. Yeah, I think we'll have some cool stuff for our table. We'll have some good stuff, so be sure to stop by. More details are coming, but we're super excited. We've heard so many good things about this festival. And so many of our Beatle friends will be there. Jude Kessler, who was on our John Lennon birthday episode last year, she's running it. She and uh, Lena Stagg are running it together. And our friend Sarah Schmidt from Meet the Beatles for Real is going to be there as well. Yes, and our new friend Terry Crane, who I got to meet for the first time at the fest. Actually, our tables in the uh, marketplace are right across from each other. His dear wife, she's the sweetest. She helped me pack up my table on Sunday. So shout out to the Cranes because they're great. Oh, so nice. Yeah, he has a new book about um, the NIMS Beatles merch, so which is really, really exciting. He's a hoot on social media. He's posting all this crazy Beatles stuff. So definitely follow him. But also, we'll be posting more updates about Beatles at the Ridge on our social media. So make sure you're hanging out with us there. And we'll uh, let you know the latest as it comes up. And if you're going to be there anywhere near Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, which is fairly close to Memphis, please stop by. Mm. You're not coming to Memphis early, are you? No, I can't. Ah, well, I I, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. I've been researching because I definitely want to do the Golden Triangle, which is, you know, Graceland, Saks, and Sun. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, how, what's the most logistical way I can hit all three in a day? So it'd be pretty exciting. Nice. Um, yeah, it'd be great. Let's move on to uh, what would typically be Beetle Feels, which I think we need to rename again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like Beetle Banter. What do you think about that? I like that. Yeah. In, in yeah. the Beetle Bubble. In the Beetle Bubble. Something. I like the alliteration of it. Beetle Banter. It sounds like Beetle Bamford from Sweeney Todd, which I kind of like. Oh, okay. Well, that's your music musical theater nerdage coming out. I can't relate, but I will take your word for it. There's got to be that. somebody who's listening who got the reference. I know you did. At me if you did, because I know you did. At, yeah, tweet at us if you get it. <laughs> um, and Erica will respond. But this week we have something special. We have what we're calling mailbag, but I was thinking maybe we should call this Dear Whack. Anybody get that? Anybody out mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. At Allison Dear if you get it. Whack. Dear whack. Yeah. Uh, I love the BBC album so much. So some of you guys have emailed uh, emailed us about past episodes and we're real. Uh, sometimes we take a minute to to respond. So we wanted to just come on the show and talk about a couple of the emails. It's so much more fun for us to do it here and discuss it here with all of you so that we can kind of widen the discussion. When we get an email, we're going to read them when we can. So please send us an email if you want to be part of the show and discuss something that you heard or a question that you have, and we can read and discuss on the episode. Hell yeah. And these two emails are cool. They're both about the same topic because we had asked you guys, especially you younger fans, um, 
than us, certainly, um, out there to talk about how you learned about or how you perceive Linda McCartney. And if you haven't heard our Linda McCartney episode, it was a few episodes ago now, um, but it's actually become one of our more popular episodes, especially with our lovely lady listeners out there. Holler to Linda. Hell yeah. So much good feedback. Unsurprising. Linda is really like the patron saint of all of us. So <laughs> Yep. Um, but yeah, so we got two amazing emails here that we're going to read and discuss. So this email is from Lena, Lana, not sure exactly which way, but both beautiful pronunciations of L-A-N-A. And it says, hi, just listened to your Linda episode. Great, by the way. Thank you. I'm 19. And personally, I love Linda. Because we have had access to a lot of information at our fingertips, we're able to learn everything really fast. I remember when I was 13, reading all of the Beatle women's Wikipedia pages. A lot of us were born after she died or were too young to know about what was happening. But because of the internet, we know a lot about her. I remember you guys saying in an episode that you wanted to talk to a teenage Beatles fan. So here's a thought I recently had that I thought I would share. Yes, we did. For a lot of people my age, we sort of think of ourselves as quote unquote missing history. The stuff I remember living through is like the Beatles getting put on iTunes and Paul's album. Now, it's a very different way of experiencing them, but I don't know it any other way. The fact that my parents were alive when John was alive, or even George, because I was one when he died, is mind-boggling to me, because it's so long before I was even a thought. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Thank you, Lena, Lana. Believe me, we feel you, because we, mm. were, we were not there, too. Even though we were around for Linda, we weren't around for John. And we weren't around for 1964 or the breakup or any of those things. And it is, it, it does feel like we missed history and we missed something outstanding and, and unable to be replicated. At least for me, I sort of came of age, like I became a Beatles fan in 2000, which is right on the cusp of the internet. So I sort of had this experience, not quite like this, but also similar because I became friends with a lot of Beatles fans via our Beatles fan sites and sort of word of mouth, like, oh, here's somebody's email address. She's a Beatles fan, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I could definitely appreciate Lana's experience. I loved her catchphrase here, like missing history, yes. which is so profound. I think, you know, it fascinates me. We talk about this all the time, but like this generation is so different. And the fact that they think of themselves as missing history is really interesting. I also really... Um... I feel you in talking about how we have to experience the Beatles through things like Paul's albums that he puts out. And you mentioned New from 2013, which was not only a really good album, but he was doing some really fun marketing around that album. So I feel really happy that, that we all got to live through that because it was, it was really cool. But for me, I feel like I started with that. You know, I'm a bit older, so when I was much younger, when Paul was on tour and he was on tour with Linda, so the way I got to experience Linda was one of the few people who were really in real time because she was right there along with Paul. She was writing her veggie cookbooks. They were into the animal rights activism. It was really cool, and she was such a presence back then. It's just hard to feel like you missed you missed something so amazing. Yeah, and I think, too, part of the Linda thinking she's so amazing is living in real time, like the Heather Mills debacle, Ugh. you know, that whole thing. So I, cause you really got, cause I, you know, I sort of came to the Beatles after Linda had died too, but I gained a really, really profound appreciation for her. And then Heather Mills came along and it just amped that up more. Cause it was like, who the hell is, you know, Heather Mills. Yeah. When Linda was so insanely amazing and just a real feminist and somebody you could definitely look up to. For sure. This makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's so interesting. Of course, it's like I we all find out 
about stuff through Wikipedia. Can you imagine if we had had Wikipedia? Oh like, my god, <laughs> we became Beatles fans. Oh my god, oh, my parents would never see me. I never would have gone out. It was enough that I had the library, and I spent so much time looking at old Beatles books there. <laughs> yeah, and checking out uh, Beatles CDs. I mean, you know, I still remember taking out off the ground a thousand times, <laughs> which is great. Off the ground. <laughs> No hate. <laughs> We're going to have to have an episode about off the ground one day. Oh my God. Can we? Can we have several? Can we, we can. have that? Driving Rain and all the bad albums. It's going to be great. Uh, anyway, thank you, Lena, Lana. Yes, um, thank you so much. That was a great email. And thanks for telling us your perspective. It's so valuable. And uh, just to validate y'all, everybody's fandom is different and special and perfect and wonderful. And you're not less of a fan because you came late. I will step off my soapbox and Erica. <laughs> no soapbox there. That's what makes this fandom so amazing is that there's so many different perspectives. I agree. Our next email is from Chelsea. Chelsea writes, Hi, I became a fan about a year ago in 2018 when I was just about to turn 18. So my love for the Beatles has come out fairly recently. Paul is without a doubt the one I've spent the most time researching. So he's definitely the one I have the most knowledge on. Studying his life also means I've studied a lot of his relationships. You mentioned you wanted to know what younger slash newer fans thought about Linda. I personally thought she was Paul's soulmate and that he was very deeply in love with her. Partly, I think that had to do with timing. When Paul met her, he was definitely looking for someone who he could start a family with. Her already having a daughter was perfect. I think he felt deeply for Linda and always gave her the respect she deserved. She was the one who had to build him up again when he was down after the breakup. Paul also said she was the first real woman he had ever met, and so I think it really helped Paul to grow up and become a man, as well as someone who is just more than a beetle. Now he has to be a husband and a father, and I think Linda sort of guided him there. He wasn't afraid to put her in his band because he wanted her to be with him and really took the time to see what her interests were, especially with her love of horses and animals, and gave that to her. I also think Linda was such a badass woman in her own right. She would go without makeup, she cut her own hair, she wore whatever she wanted because she didn't care what anybody else thought. To me, she'll always be a role model. Her photography was also really cool because she managed to take photos that captured moments and feelings, especially her candidates. I really love her and I can't for the life of me see why anybody doesn't. She seemed very sweet, very compassionate, and super cool. I hope this helped you sort of understand how us younger, newer Beatles fans see Linda. I really like your podcast, and I wish you the best of luck. Oh, Chelsea, thank you. We thank love Chelsea. love this oh. letter. And what good points you make about Linda. You hit everything, Chelsea, really. Mm -hmm. And when she met Paul, that note that you said about how she was really a woman, and she helped him become a man, that was 100%, 100% how I feel about it. Being a single mother, having already had a career, she was very independent. In a way, she's very different from Paul because Paul cares very much what everybody thinks about him. And mm. Linda uh. does not. And I think, <laughs> or did not. And I think in a way that really helped Paul grow up. Because I think sometimes part of growing up is, you know, having that realization that you can't always go by what everybody else thinks of you and you have to know what your own rhythm is and dance to it and he did eventually exact eventually yeah and i think you know that is really and, and you bring up the timing too you know which is perfect because i think paul and jane's relationship was really running out of steam of course he was cheating with a bunch of girls dirty and weekend hashtag dirty weekend forever <laughs> 
Um, and I keep like my uh, shout out to my friend Jen, who just posted an amazing Paul photo from the Dirty Weekend on my Facebook page. And uh, Sarah Schmid, our friend who we mentioned earlier, gave me an awesome actual printout of a Paul, like a photograph of Paul during the Dirty Weekend. I have it at my desk at work. Very exciting. Oh my God, you have like a Dirty Weekend shrine. I sure do. Bring that to Beatles at the Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should. Um, but no, I, I think this is per, it hits all the points of why Linda was so valuable to Paul. And it really speaks to no matter when you come to Linda, when you come to the Beatles, it, you can appreciate all these different aspects of her. And and especially, I think, one of the things that she was so badly torn apart for during her life, but now she's way more appreciated for is the fact she didn't care. She didn't shave her legs. She just was really like, this isn't who I am. I don't, you know, if you don't like it, what does that matter to me? And the fact that Paul, you know, really did let his hair down a little bit when he was with her. To be honest, she didn't really need a man. She had her career. She had her daughter. She was living her best life. And then, you know, Paul sort of fit into it, which is lucky for him. The two of them just worked so well together because I think they supported each other. Rather than her being either trailing after him and being a submissive wife or, you know, having her own career in a way that didn't let him in, which was part of the problem with Jane. Yeah, exactly. They sort of played off each other well, not just in Wings, but with her photography career, her, you know, vegetarian meal line. And of course, they did that together, became you know vegetarian and, and animal activists. So they had their combined interests, but they definitely had their separate careers, as it were, which I think helped their marriage last so long. Yeah. And I'm so glad to hear these perspectives from both Lana and Chelsea, because it feels I'm, I'm just so happy to hear that Linda isn't becoming a footnote to the Beatles story. What she stood for and who she was is so relevant right now that I'm just glad people are are finding out about her and listening to her. And, you know, Wide Prairie just came out as a remastered disc set, which is amazing. So, you know, pick that up or download that or listen to it on Spotify if you haven't, because it's outstanding. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to hear that her legacy is perpetuated and and thank you guys so much for emailing us. And if you want to talk about Linda, we'll talk about Linda like all, day. all the time. So <laughs> all day, every day. Uh, so please email us, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. And hopefully we'll have more emails to read on air. I think we have a couple more in our inbox. So we'll, we will return with more mailbag slash deer whack. <laughs> I'm going to make that a thing. I love it. This month marks the 50th anniversary of one of the darkest crimes in entertainment and beyond. Of course, I'm talking about the quote-unquote Manson murders. Now, I'm assuming that you listeners probably have some sort of basis of knowledge about what happened overnight between August 8th and 9th, 1969, but you might not know our guest today, Ivor Davis, who I got to chat with a little bit earlier this week. It's our pleasure to introduce you to Ivor, who, besides being an amazing journalist, is also a sweet, sweet member of the Beatles community. Ivor wrote a book about his time with the Beatles. It's called The Beatles and Me on Tour. In fact, I think that would probably be a really fun Beatles book club book. I read it a couple of years ago, and it came out, you know, for the 1964 50th anniversary. And he was actually a member of the Beatles tour entourage, not only reporting on their American tour for a British newspaper, I think it was the Evening Standard he worked for. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he also wrote George Harrison's column as George Harrison. So he has <laughs> a lot of fun stories to tell in that book. Personally, I've been aware of Ivor's legendary association with the Fab Four for years. 
But I honestly had no idea about his history reporting on Manson as well, which is detailed in his brand new book, Manson Exposed. It's fantastic. And I hope you guys enjoy our chat with Ivor. I was unfortunately not able to be there, but I have listened to it. And some of the details that he describes floored me. So enjoy. So, of course, before we get into your Manson book, and of course, your history with the Beatles, let's talk a little bit about your career, because I learned a lot about that in the course of this book. So how did you first get started in you know, journalism and as a writer? I always wanted to be a reporter. And in England, I decided the opportunity wasn't that brilliant. So I suddenly headed off without a job in mind to California, where I thought that was the promised land. And when I got there, I went to the L.A. Times and said, I'm here, hire me. And they said, yeah, go down to employment and fill out a form. Anyway, long story short, I got a job. I started covering Hollywood for a daily newspaper. And then London called me and said, hey, we like what you're doing. Would you like to be our West Coast correspondent? And it was for a newspaper called the London Daily Express. Circulation, four million readers a day. And that was in the... 20th century when you may remember people actually read newspapers so I was off and running and of course in 1964 the editor called me and said hey uh, the boys are coming to America that boys of course as you know were the Beatles and would you get to San Francisco and travel with them every step of the way you're in limo number two you're in their jet plane and we want you to write George Harrison's column and I, and I was off and running, uh, as I like to say, a real incredible ticket to ride. And I didn't know then that they would become legends, and neither did they. And that, that set me on the path to uh, really an amazingly lucky career as a foreign correspondent. And you'd actually been covering some really hot topic issues in the U.S. before that. I didn't realize that you were on the campus of Ole Miss when James Meredith the, yes. got, walked in. Yeah, I had no yes. idea. Well, these, these were the big stories, Alison, of the 60s. Um, James Meredith, as you may remember, I don't think you were probably born at the time. I um, wasn't, but, but I do know about it, you, of course. Yeah, yeah, well, of course. And Meredith was the first black college candidate to be escorted to the University of Mississippi by 500 U.S. marshals. And I was there and people rioted and I smuggled on the campus as a... Uh, student and uh, witnessed it and reported on it. There were deaths, there were riots, there were National Guard. And so uh, I went from one story to the other story, including, as I say, the Beatles and then Bobby Kennedy in the kitchen when he got shot in 1968 and covering a guy, an actor called Ronald Reagan, who decided he wanted to run for president. Mm, and the rest, familiar. as they say, is history. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was very lucky. Yeah. And of course, you were at Cielo Drive the morning the bodies were found. Tell us about that morning and the following days, because you tell it so well in the book, but well, I, it's yes, well, unbelievable. Here's what happened, uh, Alison. Um, because I was the correspondent, the office called me and said the wire services say there's been many people murdered at Cielo Drive in Beverly Hills. So I raced over there. They did not know on August the 9th, 1969, who had been murdered. And we hung around the house. We saw the cops. The bodies were still there. Everybody was wondering what was going on. And, of course, the police kept us in the dark 
for several hours until it was revealed that the victims were, of course, the very pregnant, eight and a half month pregnant Sharon Tate, the beautiful actress married to Roman Polanski, the film director, and three of her friends, including Jay Sebringer, a, a Hollywood hairdresser, stylist, and two, uh, Wojtok Frakowski and Abigail Folger, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune. And the fifth victim was an unfortunate young man called Stephen Parent, who was visiting somebody in the guest house, and he was there at the wrong place at the wrong time, and he died as well. Something, too, that I didn't really grasp before I read your book, because we sort of now think this sort of took place in an instant, but I didn't realize how long it took to actually solve the Tate-LaBianca murders and figure out who actually did them. Yes, you're absolutely right. And a lot of people think um, 24 hours later, of course, there was another murder of Rosemary uh, and Lino LaBianca, a couple of uh, very innocent people that lived 15 miles away from Sharon Tate's house. And the amazing thing is that the cops... In L.A., the homicide officers never found the true killers until four months later. And if I may just add how it happened, there was a lady called Susan Atkins, a disciple of Charles Manson, the leader of the family. And it was Susan Atkins was in jail on another murder charge. And she blabbed and boasted to her cellmates about the fact that she had murdered Sharon Tate. They didn't believe her. She gave them such immaculate details of the murders that they finally believed her. The cops came in, interviewed Susan Atkins, and wham, the, the case was solved thanks to loudmouth Susan Atkins. She just couldn't help herself. Well, that's it. I mean, it's bizarre, but um, I mean, if she had not blabbed to her cellmates, who knows, we, we might not have ever heard of the outcome of the murders because because the cops were frankly quite clueless yeah i get that sense and you well you could have had the first interview with manson you know but he wanted three hundred dollars was it yes he he did and and my office manson was being arraigned 200 miles from la on car theft i mean ridiculous as it seems and after the arraignment in a place called inyo county a town called Independence. Manson uh, was taken back to the holding cell. I spoke to a friend of his, said I would like to talk to him. He said, well, he wants $300 to pay for his legal fees. I called my office and they said, we don't pay men or women accused of murder, anything. And so he didn't give me the interview. But to be honest with you, Alison, I saw him in a trial for one year, which I covered. And Manson was full of kind of a, a Barnum and Bailey circus gibberish. He would say anything. And I knew that I, I would never get the truth from him then. And we never, ever got the truth from him for the many years that followed until his death uh, two years ago. Right. Well, what was it like to be in the courtroom with him for, as you say, you know, such a long period of time? What, was there a strange energy, like this Manson sort of manic, like, your presence? Um, what you've got to realize is that Manson wanted to be a rock star, but he settled for being a showman. He settled for being an actor. And, and the, the trial, which I covered every day for almost a year, Manson performed. He performed by cutting swastikas and crosses in his forehead. He performed by, by trying to give those of us in the audience the evil eye, witnesses he kind of outstared. 
he performed by one day leaping at the judge with a sharp pencil, screaming, die, old man. And of course, he was rugby tackled and stuck in a holding cell. Every day during the unbelievable trial, Manson did a different performance. And the amazing thing is that the girls, uh, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Patricia Krenwinkel, they mimicked everything he did. So it was, uh, I mean, it was like a, a free form theatrical performance, but the stakes were high because Manson, if convicted, was going to get the death penalty. They were obviously just blind disciples at that point. I've heard that they still kind of are. Some of them are still devout to Manson. Well, the, the truth is, Alison, that what happened was during the trial and for a few years afterwards, they remained, pledged their allegiance to Manson. But gradually they realized that he was a faker and that they finally uh, rebutted what he stood for very, very vehemently. Of course, they did it partly because they wanted to get parole. But Manson had this grip over them for many years after the trial. And even Susan Atkins, who was his worst cohort in the killings, finally turned against Manson. But I'll tell you this, today, there are still young women, now old women, who, uh, as I say, pledge allegiance and believe Manson was a man wrongly accused and wrongly convicted. I've seen them. They went to his funeral in uh, March of 2018. And, um, you know, they still think he was a, a man wrongly accused. Did you go to the funeral? No, I did not. I wasn't invited. But, um, <laughs> but the reason I know who was there was that, that Manson's grandson, Jason Freeman Manson, filmed the whole event and then made a documentary of it. And I saw uh -oh. that documentary and there they were all. They were sort of, sort of coming to the coffin and placing uh, like a, a Nazi memorabilia in the coffin. And it was, I mean, it was bizarre, according to the, uh, the film footage that I saw. So I know there are some people that even today, 50 years later, are devotees of Manson. So strange. So strange. Yes. And as you mentioned, one of the most fascinating parts of the Manson story for those of us in the music industry and community and music fans is, is this part of him that wanted to be a musician. And of course, his direction to this house on Cielo Drive was steered by Terry Melcher, a record producer who produced Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Birds. It's sort of a part of the Manson story that gets left out. And I think it's one of the most interesting. It's his failed yes. musicianship. Yeah, well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Charles Manson dreamed of becoming a rock star. Um, as it happened, he turned out to be kind of more famous than Jack the Ripper, but not as a rock star, as a murderer. But back then, Manson, believe it or not, managed to kowtow his way into the home and living in the home of Dennis Wilson, who was the, the kind of crazy, drunken, druggy drummer of the Beach Boys. And what happened was, very simply, was that one day Dennis Wilson picked up two of Manson's girls. Dennis Wilson boasted to them about his uh, devotion to the Maharishi. The girls said, we have a guru named Charles Manson, and they, they talked him up as uh, being a genius and a wizard and and Mr. Dennis Wilson invited the girls to his house, a brilliant, spacious mansion on Sunset Boulevard. And the girls moved in with Manson into the mansion. And Dennis Wilson was a, a happy, 
collaborator because Dennis Wilson was provided with drugs by Manson and with free sex with any of the girls he wanted. So Charles Manson found himself in a remarkable situation of being palsy-wowsy with Dennis Wilson. And Dennis Wilson had the rock and roll royalty from the Beach Boys to the uh, Mamas and the Papas coming to his house. And would you believe that Charles Manson performed for them? And it was at that party that Mr. Manson met Terry Melcher, uh, the record producer, as you said, from The Birds and others, whose mother was Doris Day, the famous legendary film star. And for a moment in time, Mr. Melcher thought that maybe Charlie had the talent to make a successful record star. And of course, Manson pinned his hopes on Melcher and Melcher, according to Manson, let him down by walking away after giving him an audition. So that was the sort of root of all the evil and the root of, of Manson's twisted, warped mind about being a rock star being rejected. Right. And I sort of liken it to Hitler being a painter, you know, because Charlie Manson was not a terrible songwriter. You know, he had ceased to exist, which the Beach Boys later appropriated as they one did. of their songs. They did. They did. And, and, and you, you've got to realize, Alison, with that one act, with Charlie Manson giving Dennis Wilson ceased to exist, Dennis Wilson recording it and changing the name of the song, as you pointed out, and not giving Manson credit. Mr. Manson was very upset. And he just said, you know, these rock and roll people, these are, they have no loyalty. You can't believe them, their word. And he, he began to detest people in the music industry. And it sort of snowballed. So let's, of course, we're going to talk about the Beatles and the Manson connection because it's so crazy and insane. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the White Album, obviously. Uh, you know, Manson, as many of our listeners might know, Manson sort of, took the White Album and, and used it as sort of a blueprint, let's say, uh, and try and found all these quote-unquote messages in the album predicting a race war and kind of Armageddon. So let's, Ivor, you and me go through a, a few of the, uh, the clues here, yeah. the connections. Um, let's talk about Helter Skelter. Yeah, I mean, you're very familiar with Helter Skelter. Um, of course. Um, you, you know the lyrics. I know the lyrics. I mean, in your wildest imagination, Alison, could you in any way conceive the lyrics of Helter Skelter as a call to a race riot for murder, for bloodshed, pitting white against black? I mean, it, it, it's, you know, I think Paul did it as a Helter Skelter, a, a kind of a, a funfair ride. Mm, and there's nothing, yeah. I mean, tell me, is there anything in the lyrics there, Alison, that, that, that makes you believe that it, it, it's a, a secret indictment, a secret blueprint for race riots? Um, I'm going to have a hard pass on that one. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Paul has said, too, it's like he was challenging the who with that song, you know, yes. where it's like, oh, you think you can rock? Here's me rocking harder with Helter Skelter. And it's sort of, you know, classic exactly. Paul nonsense, really. Yes. And even, you know, you know the other songs that we're going to talk about, Piggies, Revolution. Mm -hmm. Manson, and I heard this from the lips of Manson followers, who said they believed Manson was getting secret messages from the Beatles, from those White Album songs, that the, there was going to be a race riot. And not only did Manson brainwash his, his followers into believing that, they believed it. They heard it 50 times at the Spahn movie ranch where they lived, and they started to believe that it was, it was true. 
And of course, it was the biggest load of hogwash on the face of the earth. And I must add this, Alison, when I heard that story, knowing the Beatles, having toured with them, I thought to myself, when I heard them say they believed that the White Album lyrics were incitement to riot, I thought, what a load of old rubbish. But I didn't say that. And so anybody today who looks at it would, would throw their hands up. But the footnote, the punchline to what I'm about to say is this. In July 1970, the trial began and Vincent Bugliosi, the chief prosecutor in the case, used that scenario for the basis of his motive to the jury. And believe it or not, I mean, I heard it and thought the guy is on LSD or something. And believe it or not, a jury believed his thesis and they convicted. So tell me who's crazy. Uh, there's a lot of crazy happening here, kind of all over the place, I think. <laughs> yes, um, yes. It's just funny to me because Manson so heavily co-opted, you know, Helter Skelter. It was written in blood at, I believe, the LaBianca house, correct? It was misspelled. It was. It was. See, <laughs> it, it, um, if I may just intervene slightly. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, having been very close to this case, I think the Helter Skelter theory was rubbish. I think the district attorney went with it and made the jury believe. I mean, the reason that Manson carried out the murders, in my opinion, is this. A week before Sharon Tate was murdered, another musician called Gary Hinman was murdered in Topanga Canyon, California. Mm -hmm. He was murdered by Manson and Manson's follower called Robert Beausoleil. Beausoleil was a musician, a close ally of Manson. He murdered Gary Hinman at the behest and at the instructions of Manson. At the time, he wrote pig and helter skelter and things like that on the wall of the murder house in the blood of victim Gary Hinman. Mr. Beausoleil, the devotee of Manson, was arrested a few days later and Charlie thought, oh my God, I've landed Beausoleil in this mess. What can I do to make the police? They've got the wrong man. And as, as outrageous as what I'm about to say is, he decided to set up two copycat murders, Sharon Tate and the La Biancas, leaving the same bloody daubings in the victim's blood on the walls to try and make the cops believe that Beausoleil was not the real perpetrator of these murders and they would kick Beausoleil free. Of course, it didn't happen. Today, Bobby Beausoleil is still in prison, still trying to get parole. And so you think that because the prosecution weighed so heavily on the Helter Skelter theory, do you think we would have heard this much about it or this much would have been made about the connection between the Beatles and Manson if they hadn't been like, okay, well, this is what we're going with to prosecute Manson is this whole crazy helter-skelter thing. Well, th there would have been coverage, as you point out, of the case. It was a mass murder. It was, it was involved a most beautiful a movie star, uh, celebrity, hairdressers, people like that. But, but the whole helter-skelter theory was outrageous. And for some reason, and I think the reason is this, that if Vincent Bugliosi, the chief prosecutor, had gone with the true reason for the murders to cover up the murder by Bobby Beausoleil, the jury would have said, well, you know, it's a pretty thin premise. We're not going to convict him because of that. So Bugliosi went with the helter-skelter theory and it stuck. And the risk of letting Manson off if they went with the real reason for the murders made Bugliosi go with the helter-skelter theory. And as I 
said a moment ago, and as we all know and the world knows, it was a success. And they convicted Manson, and they convicted Manson also because they saw the manipulation that he carried out during a one-year trial on the girls. So the whole thing made sense to the jury, and they, that's why they convicted. So Helter Skelter and the Beatles were innocent of any of that claptrap. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I, don't, and I don't think Manson did himself any favors, too, by kind of acting so erratic and carving, you know, swastikas into his head and, and that sort of thing. I think it all sort of made sense to the jury at that point. It did. It did. Because, yeah. you know, they saw that the girls, I mean, when, when Manson carved swastikas and crosses in his head, the girls did. When Manson shaved his head, the girls did. When Manson muttered something to the judge, the girls sang what he said. The jury saw that Charles Manson was the puppeteer, the mastermind or the manipulator, the Pied Piper, whatever you want to call it, of these murders. Because whatever he said, the girls mimicked. And the jury thought, well, I mean, if, if he said Helter Skelter was a call to murder, we're going to convict. And they convicted. It's interesting that Manson, you know, they would go towards the Helter Skelter when there's a song on the White Album called Revolution, which seems pretty on the nose if if. Charles Manson wanted to talk about a race revolution or that kind of thing. But, you know, of course, in the song, the lyric goes, if you talk about destruction, don't you know they can count me out, not yes, in? So exactly. it didn't really play into his narrative, I guess. No. So well. no it, I mean, that's what John Lennon told me years later. He said, it's count me out, not count me in. And the other thing that, um, that Manson in his perverted mind was able to brainwash his, his uh, followers was this stuff about the, the, the Bible, you know, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in their breastplates. And he said, well, can't you see the breastplates of these people are guitars and they've got, they've got the hair of women and can't you see that the Beatles have mop hairs, haircuts? So he, he somehow translated some of the biblical writings to his followers to identify these biblical people with the Beatles. I mean, it's crazy as we talk about it in the light of today, but that's the way it came down 50 years ago. I remember you going through that whole thing in your book, and I was sitting there like laughing out loud because I, I had remember, remembered reading that before, but it just, it never gets less ridiculous. No, I mean, <laughs> it really I, doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you tell me, Alison, when you first discovered this whole Helter Skelter thing and knowing your background and your musical knowledge, what was your reaction? Weren't you uh, astonished? Yeah, of course. But it's, you know, I also realize that it's a very sexy story. You know, I mean, yes. if it were a straightforward murder, it would be interesting, but maybe not as infamous. So I think for me, yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I think it's also I think for both of us, it's very intriguing, you know, yes. to unpack all this. It's you know, how did this even come down like this? So, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's crazy, craziness. And as you mentioned, you know, a couple of their songs that are very much like straightforward, how he could have parlayed them. Piggies, obviously yeah. relating to the cops and um, Yeah, but let me, let me yeah. just stop you there a second, Alison, because Please. don't forget, you just pointed out piggies and cops. But I don't think that in England, when they wrote this music, that piggies were considered cops in the UK, whereas the, the Black Panthers called the police in Oakland piggies and so if you, if you go back and I probably should have should have checked this out but I don't think piggies were policemen in the UK because don't forget the Beatles wrote it in the UK in America piggies 
were police. Right. I think George had said that piggies were, I mean, it, the context of the song, too. It's a lot of his, in the vein of tax man, talking about the rich upper class, sort of yes. like people who kind of just sit on their laurels and don't really do much, you know? Exactly. But like you say, yeah, here in the U.S., especially at that time, the piggies were the law enforcement officers. And then, of course, we have Blackbird and Rocky Raccoon, which they took in a very racist direction. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And, of course, like, Sexy Sadie referenced Susan Atkins. I mean, isn't it amazing that I think probably Manson called Susan Atkins Sexy Sadie because he, he was able to label her that and then, all, uh, you know, because he knew the song. So he just twisted that song into a hometown favorite, if you like, a, a rather warped hometown favorite. Right, kind of convenient. And I actually think Sexy Sadie is about the Maharishi himself, which is kind of appropriate when you think about Manson in relationship to this whole thing. I agree. And, um, you know, happiness is a warm gun, kind of self-explanatory what Manson would dig in that. Anything that had a label on that, you've got to realize that when I went to the Spahn Ranch in December of 1969 and spoke to everybody, and they told me that Manson gave out LSD and mescaline like candy to them and their minds were somewhat twisted by these mind-altering drugs that he could have told them the moon was a ball of cheese and they would have believed it. Right. They were so doped up yes, on many exactly. levels. It's funny. I was thinking about this yesterday in the context of the larger music scene and what albums came out and, and all of that in 1968 around the White Album time. I'm surprised that Manson didn't glom on to say Becker's Banquet by the Stones because, yes. you know, on their Street Fighting Man with the lyric, the time is right for a palace revolution, which seems to be more of a call to arms than anything on the White Album. Yeah, well, that would have rewritten the whole bloody case, wouldn't it? There's a song about writing on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, sure. Right on the Sunset Strip. Yes. I mean, why didn't Manson take that one? That could be perceived as more revolutionary than any of the Beatles white album music. Yeah, because it was based on the, um, you know, the curfew riots in 67. Yes. And as you said, you talked to John about this, and I believe you talked to Paul about the Salt Manson thing, too. Several years later, I went to see John at a house that he was living at, belonging to the record mogul uh, producer called Lou Adler. And uh, John was with um, May Pang at the time, who'd been loaned out to John by Yoko. And uh, I asked John, first of all, about the Manson thing, and he, he would, didn't want to go there, but then when he, I told him that I'd covered the trial and I knew all about the music, he derided Manson for involving him and the Beatles in this horrible murder. And, of course, as, as you know, Ringo knew Roman Polanski and George Harrison. They all universally, uniformly, scathingly, said Manson was bonkers. That he was. Yeah, 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 I would agree. And I definitely want to talk about the Beatles because I've got you to talk about the Beatles with. But yeah. did you keep up your relationship with the Beatles after you worked with them on well, the tours and that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is, uh, I must tell you this, that about a month ago, I went down to the Petco Stadium in San Diego for a Paul McCartney concert. And I hadn't seen Paul for many years, like 20, 30 years. And I went backstage and spoke to Paul. And we had a bit of fun in the conversation. I, I asked Paul if he would perform more than 28 minutes the way he did on the Beatles' first tour. 
He said, just wait and see. He said, wait and see. <laughs> and of course, as you know, and as most of Paul's fans know, Paul performs for three hours nonstop, 38 songs. And the so other funny. funny line, I must tell you this, the other funny line. So in the days I traveled with the Beatles, there was Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall, their two roadies. And I asked Paul, well, do you know, have more than two? And he said, they've got 92 people on the road with, with Paul. So times they are a changing, as that other guy sang. Yeah, some other guy, I think, said that, yeah. yeah. So funny. I'm so glad you got to connect with Paul. And it is very funny. I am always amazed at his live performances because he doesn't take a drink of water. He doesn't take any breaks. It's, it's amazing. Oh. He's got more energy than I do, like tenfold. You're absolutely right. And, and this is the amazing thing because we actually talked before the show, which is normally you talk after the show. So I said to Paul, you know, why do you talk before the show? You're going to do a big show ahead. And he said, well, the problem is that as soon as the show finishes, we're out of here in a helicopter because last time we get away in a limo and we get trapped. So it was a getaway question. But as you said, and you've seen the shows, I don't know, did you see them in, in at L.A. With, when Ringo showed up? Did you go to I, that show? I didn't, um, but I've seen him many, many, many times over yeah. the years. So, yeah. I mean, three hours, 38 songs. And as you saw, I like the idea that he said, he says to the audience, you want to hear old Beatles songs? Well, you're going to hear them, but you're going to have to hear some of my new stuff. And of course, he, he, he delivers his new stuff. That's great. And I love the fact that he still has to make a getaway. After all, that's very Beatles-ish. Yeah. Well, you know, you've given me an opening because when I covered the Beatles Please. in 64, we made a getaway. And here's how we did it. We did it. I'm sure you've heard. They ditched the limousine and went in an ambulance or a fire truck or a, an armored car because that was the only way they could get out fast. There was all sorts of very inventive ways to escape the crowds when their 27-minute show was over. Yeah, I, I imagine it's kind of like a hard day's night, but actually real. Yeah, yes, exactly. And yeah. a hard day's night was pretty real in, in a funny way. Yeah, definitely based on uh, true Beatlemania events. Yeah. I definitely want to hear more about your time with the Beatles. What are a handful of your best memories that come to mind when you think about your time with them? One of the things that you cannot believe today is the amazing access we had to John, Paul, George and Ringo. I was in the next door room. We could get up and we'd go into them and raid their mini bar, much to the chagrin of Brian Epstein, who kept complaining to John and the boys about spending too much money on room service. And, you know, two o'clock in the morning, John would call and say, hey, come over. I, I want to play Monopoly. And we did. And we'd go over, me and Art Schreiber, who was a Westinghouse reporter, and we'd play Monopoly at two in the morning. And then in the middle of the game, John would call to Cynthia in England because it was two o'clock in the morning, was 10 o'clock in the morning in London and Liverpool and um, talk to the baby, you know, and um, it was a memorable thing. Of course, John was a brilliant talent, uh, a bit crazy, a bit outrageous <laughs> um, and um, always entertained us. And, and he was a, a provocateur. He loved to call me. Ivan the Terrible, and I said, it's not Ivan, it's Ivor, but he still insisted on calling me Ivan. And, he, you know, he liked to, to kind of needle you, and he got a kick out of that. So he was great. Paul was Mr. Charming, always, always Mr. Charming. You know, he'd come down the jet 
aisle and he'd say, uh, can I get you a, a drink, Ivor? You know, like the waiter. George was a bit more surly and Ringo was okay. But the two others, Paul and John, were really the stars. And I must ask you, because on this podcast, we talk a lot about Brian Epstein. What are your memories associated with Brian? Well, I must tell you that Brian was kind of, I mean, he wanted to give the boys a spotlight, but he was like their headmaster. They were trying to light a cigarette up at a press conference. Brian would get upset. And Brian sort of had his own agenda. And the only time I can tell you that I got friendly with Brian was one day, believe it or not, we were in New Orleans on the eve of Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. And Derek Taylor, the press agent, called me and said, Brian wants to talk to you. I thought, what the hell does Brian want to talk to me about? Now, I, I am Jewish, and Brian knew I was Jewish. And Brian said, can you get me a ticket to the Yom Kippur services in New Orleans? So I, I called up the temple, the synagogue, and got it. And then the next day, Brian didn't show up. So that was weird. But the mm. point was that both Brian and I kind of bonded because we had both spent useless times in the British military doing our national service. I mean, I thought it was a waste of time. Brian thought it was a waste of time. And he told me that he'd managed to get out. I think it lasted 18 months or two years. But mm. after about nine months, Brian was excused from doing it. So we kind of hit it off a bit like that. But Brian was always there, but uh, making sure that the boys didn't get out of the line. Because don't forget, Brian's whole reputation as an entrepreneur, as their manager, was riding on making sure that this tour was a success. And as most of the historians and uh, lovers of the Beatles know, he got them on the Ed Sullivan Show. 73 million people watched them on the Ed Sullivan Show. And the Beatles were on the road to smash history. And after the Ed Sullivan Show, Brian said, the boys are coming on their first American tour. And in August 1964, the Beatles hit San Francisco and were a smash hit on the first American tour. And you talk about playing Monopoly with them, which I know is one of my favorite stories from your Beatles book. But how were you able to keep the balance of being a journalist covering the tour, but also being friendly with the boys? Well, I mean, first of all, the boys were charming. I mean, they were friendly. And don't forget, I mean, here's the thing, Alison, that we were like, we suddenly became their family, that we suddenly became the people they could talk to because the boys could not go out of their hotel. They were trapped by, you know, hundreds of screaming girls who would have ripped them apart if they'd gone out. So we, they were stuck with, with me and Art Schreiber and a few of the other journalists that were there. And so it was us or nobody. And so they became comfortable in our presence and we became comfortable. And the only trouble was back then we didn't have the internet. And if the boys misbehaved or maybe there was something going on with a few female visitors, we wouldn't write about it because we knew it was like uh, telling tales on members of our own family. Of course, today with the internet, if the boys had misbehaved on a tour and there were journalists there, it would have been on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. Of course, we didn't have computers or we didn't have cell phones back then. Thankfully. Thankfully, yeah, I thankfully, think. Yeah, thankfully, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
And so, you know, we've talked about a lot of things during our chat, Manson and Ole Miss and, and RFK. So where do the Beatles fall for you in this amazing array of history that you've covered and worked with and written well, about? Yeah. In retrospect, the Beatles were a wonderful chapter in my life. But as a journalist, what you do is you cover a big story. You do not have time working for a daily newspaper to sit back and, and have the luxury of, of contemplating what happened. As soon as the Beatles finished, I went back to Los Angeles. And the next day, my story was um, covering the Warren Commission findings on the John Kennedy assassination. And then you went from one big story onto the other big story, and they all accumulate like a, a traffic jam until you have time to suddenly stop and say, wow, what a career. Yeah, it's stunning, you know, all of it. And of course, you know, me as, you know, somebody who didn't, wasn't there for all these things, I look back and I'm like, that's amazing. You know, this, this sort of menu of delicious news stories that you, you covered. I mean, don't forget, back in 1964, the Beatles never, ever expected that you and I, 55 years later, would be talking about them. They thought they would last, as you know, five years if they were lucky. You've heard the story about Ringo saying when he made some money, he was going to open a hairdressing salon. John and Paul said, oh, you know, what we'll do when the Beatles are ended, we'll write music for other people. They never, never imagined in their wildest dreams that you and I in, in the summer of 2019 would be doing an autopsy, a nice autopsy on the Beatles. And you're still working a crazy amount. You, I feel very unprolific next to you, Ivor, because you seem to come out with new projects all the time. I see you on Facebook and, and social media. What are you working on next? The Manson book has taken a lot out of me because I had to try and bring it out. With all honesty, I thought I'd bring it out, of course, for the anniversary of the murders, because then, you, you know, when you write a book, no matter how great or terrible it is, you have to promote it. And then, of course, there was um, Quentin Tarantino's movie, um, mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where a lot of people who did not know about Manson were sort of peripherally introduced to Manson and Sharon Tate and a few other little things. But don't forget, as I like to say, I don't know. Have you seen the film, Alison? I have. I have. What did I would love to know what you thought of it. Well, you tell me, uh, and then I'll tell you. <laughs> Okay, okay. Deal. I loved it. I don't know if you were around LA when they were filming it, but I remember watching them film parts of it. So it was cool to see what the results on the screen. But I, I thought it was great. Of course, you have to go into it with a grain of salt. This is a film, not a historical documentary, but I thought it was very lovingly done. And yeah. I, the soundtrack was amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a music maven, you must have appreciated the soundtrack very, very much. And I, th I think it's going to win a few Oscars. I think it, g it gets DiCaprio and maybe Brad Pitt nominations for Best Actor. We'll see. But as you so. said, the line that you mentioned a moment ago to me rings absolutely true. You have to take it with a grain of salt. How about a whole saucepan full of salt? Yeah. <laughs> because because it, it's a what-if movie. It's a fairy story. It's a Grimm's fairy story. It takes the truth and um, bends it beyond recognition. I don't want to mention any more about the end of the film because there are many people who are listening to you who don't know how the movie goes. And so all I'll say is that, um, as I say, once upon a time in Hollywood, fairy story, 
a great watch. Everything you've said about it is true. Beautifully wrought, beautifully filmed. Music's great. And um, people will love it. But um, I must say that that grain of salt movie, uh, but my book is the truth. That is true. And your book is phenomenal. And recommending it to all of our listeners. You'll love it. You'll learn a lot about Manson. I certainly learned a lot. And Ivor, thank you so much for being on Because the Beatles and good luck with the book and all of your future projects. I'm sure there'll be a ton of them. (laughs) Thank you, Alison, for giving me the time. And it's a pleasure to talk to you about music and murder and all that stuff. Bye-bye. Always. Bye. And we're back. That was amazing, the conversation with Ivor. So I'm so glad, Allison, that you got to do that. And oh, it was so fun. I'm sure it was. He's such a such a nice person. He's such a sweet man. And for our final bit of the week, we'll talk about our latest Beatles obsession. And because mine is not as exciting as yours, I will go first. That's not true. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, as many of you know, Paul McCartney is debuting a children's book called Hey Grand Dude. It's going to be out first week of September. And he is actually reading it in person at Waterstones in London on September 6th. You could have gotten tickets for you as an adult with your child friend or grandchild friend to come to Waterstones and listen to Paul McCartney read this book and meet Paul McCartney. Sorry, that's me crying. I know. And I'm obsessed with this because of how hard it is to see Paul McCartney in almost any other avenue of life. I wish that I had known about this. I wish I was somebody who lived in London with a child to borrow. um, And I would have (laughs) borrowed said child and gone to have him read Hey Grand Dude to me. And if anybody out there knows anybody who is going to this or has gone to this, if you're already listening later after the 6th, please let us know because I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of Paul McCartney doing story time to a bunch of kids reading his book. Oh, my God. I mean, at that for this, I would like literally steal a child off the street. I, I don't, you know, I don't know any British children, but I would surely find one. <laughs> Any British child will do. GD event. Exactly. I'm not picky. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure we'll be talking about Hey Grand Dude more. I have a story about Hey Grand Dude that I'm not actually allowed to share yet, but I think by the time the next episode comes out, I'll be able to talk about it. More to come. You say that your favorite thing of the week is eclipsed by mine, but that, but yours, what you can't talk about eclipses all. So stay tuned for Erica's amazing. secret that she's keeping coming soon coming soon so allison (laughs) what are you obsessed with this week it can't be that big of a deal oh it's not a big deal at all erica let me just tell you it's been it's been a real boring uh week for me in my life like you know i just went to see the stones last week no big deal but that's not it of course my favorite thing in the week is that last friday i went to capitol and got to hear some of the new Abbey Road remixes from Giles ah. Mark and Sam Appel. Yep. And I'm, it's super exciting. I got to go. I was very lucky last year to go um, and hear the White Album with Giles in the room to kind of explain it and talk us through his process and all of that. This time, uh, Giles wasn't there, but Guy Hayden, who's the VP of Apple Corps and who sort of works on the business side of all this, was. Um, and he gave us a little insight. But 
you know, they played us most of the album in 5.1 stereo and it sounded fantastic. It's, it's more of what you expect after these last like stunning reissues. So there's different elements that are brought forward and some that hang back and there's definitely differences. I could hear stuff that that wasn't there before. And I noticed other elements that I'd actually not heard before period. So yeah, it was great. So they played all of side two and uh, most of side one, no Maxwell Slipper Hammer, no Octopus's Garden. And I think, Oh Darling was also le- left out. Mm. But of course, side two is the thing everybody wants to hear in the best sounding sound in the whole world. And? Um, at one of the world's greatest recording studios. And it was effing awesome. Oh my God. <laughs> but they also played us selected tracks in Dolby Atmos. And if you haven't heard about this, it's going to be the next thing. So we had surround sound at 5.1. So now this is Atmos. So what that is, is on the ceiling of the studio that we were in, there were nine speakers embedded, sort of like if you were sitting right in the middle of the studio, there were three above you, three behind you, and three in front of you. But in total, there are 22 speakers in Dolby Atmos. So the rest were embedded in the walls. Oh, my God. Yeah. What? So it's kind of like listening to music in IMAX, which is <laughs> insane. Um, so they played us Here Comes the Sun and Because in oh, Atmos. Oh my god. And to hear Because in Atmos was like the wildest trip I can ever imagine, like a sonic trip. I kept turning my head different ways to see like what I was picking up where in the room. Because you're literally inside the song. It's happening all around you. Like there's so much to take in, especially with those harmonies. And all I could think when I was hearing especially because in such great sound quality in both Atmos and 5.1 is that the real melding of the Beatles voices in because is like one Beatle. I'm like, this is what one Beatle sounds like. That's a good <laughs> you know? observation. Yeah. It's amazing. Did you hear anything from the speakers that talked about their process or anything new insight into the, the making of this new version? A little bit. We, we talked about the process of putting this out and sourcing the tapes and things. And it was interesting. Um, Guy Hayden was talking about one tape in particular, which they found around the White Album release. And it had for 40, 50 years said blank tape on the uh, outside of the package. So everybody assumed it was a blank tape. He said Mark Lewison even assumed it was a blank tape. So somebody at Apple was like, well, hell, I'm just going to sit down and listen to it. If it's blank, I'll have wasted four hours of my life or whatever. So the guy sat down and listened to it. And at the very, very end was the demo of Julia that was on the White Album. <gasps> you know, the one where John's sort of like, I could play it standing, I could play it sitting. Mm-hmm. Like, but, And it's really a sweet moment between him and George Martin. And so I was like, oh, my God, like, that's so cool. I didn't know the story of how they found that. Wow. Um, so it was a lot of that with the Abbey Road tapes as well. They played us some of the outtakes, a couple of which, you know, were John and Paul in the studio. Some of them were really cheeky because they were, you know, this is when they sort of reconnected for the last time in some of these sessions. And for the first time since the early days of the Beatles, they were sitting together writing, playing. And so there's one, at one point, Paul says, are you ready, George? And then John's like, well, you're a little behind there, Ringo. And George and Ringo aren't there. It's just them being <laughs> goofy, you know? Aww. So it's it's really sweet. There are some really sweet moments. Oh, I'm so glad you got to go to that. I know. I, I Yeah, it was mesmerizing. I just felt so lucky. And I, you know, I cannot wait to hear the 
finished packages and you know it's coming out uh, in a three cd one blu-ray edition there's gonna be a vinyl release there's gonna be a remastered i mean really it's something for everybody i honestly just i can't wait and i can't wait to play it over and over and uh just kind of live in abbey road for the next however long hopefully we get to let it be set hopefully we do i know we should with all of these things coming out and and the movie coming out yes yes i can't wait to see that that comes out to september 27th things are available for pre-order we will very very quickly be online with a review of that once it is released we will definitely have a special episode or something with that so look out for that but definitely get your pre-orders in i know a lot of people at the fest were talking about their pre-orders and all that so it's going to be cool it's gonna, it's a really cool time to be a beatles fan as, as it's been the last few years with these reissues yeah it's been so yay that's my beatles thing of the week or <laughs> the month that. or the year the month or the year or <laughs> exactly probably since the last listening session yeah that's uh pretty pretty true there good stuff Amazing. Mm, love it thank you as always for listening to bc the beatles and please subscribe on itunes apple podcast or wherever you're listening right now give us a rating and review so other beetle maniacs can find us please yes and follow us on facebook instagram twitter we'll be posting photos of more more beetle stuff more epi road stuff more everything stuff remember you can always email us again at bc the beatles at gmail and uh, we'll see you next time bye bye